0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear
0: it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
2: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I'm really excited today because I love this topic. And uh, one of our Down the pub regulars is the one that brought it to the table. Kit, tell us what you've got and who you brought with you.
1: I'm really excited too. So we are going to do the first crusade. Uh, And with us is a very good friend of mine, Dr. James Holloway. He's an expert in early medieval England based in Cambridge and is part of Gaming the Crusades, a project with the University of Edinburgh. James, thank you for coming along. Oh, thank you very much for having me.
2: I love this one. This uh, I had to do this for A-level, which is why I know about the First Crusade and I bugger all about all the others, other than that Sean Connery crops up at some point um, and that I love Saladin. Um, But... I just, so let's start right with the beginning, the origins of the first crusade really go back all the way to the Byzantine Empire, don't they?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and and this is a this is a I, I want to put in a disclaimer right at the beginning, um, which is of course you know we're going to call it the Byzantine Empire, but that's not what they called it. You know, they called it the Roman Empire. And also, uh, we're going to have names in this episode that come from uh from French, Italian, Greek, German, Armenian, uh, Turkic, Persian, and Arabic. So I'm gonna mispronounce uh all kinds of things um, and I apologize in advance uh sorry. for that
2: sorry not sorry.
0: All of our, our <laughs> Armenian speaking listeners I, I apologize. You know, I don't know how much Armenian stuff we're gonna get into, but um, it's out there. So yeah, so the the origins of the first crusade, I mean you can go back quite a long way with them, but I think a lot of people start in the ten seventies. Um, with the aftermath of the Battle of Manzikert, um, and Manzikert has been portrayed as this like enormous um, military defeat that destroys the Byzantine army and allows the Seljuk Turks to flood into Byzantine territory. And I think that that's probably overstating the case uh, somewhat. It's it's, uh, but it's more like a it's a very convenient beginning for a period of political instability that's going to last throughout the entire 1070s um and that's not going to end until uh emperor alexius i emerges as the 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 winner of this succession crisis um the uh, the emperor is is captured uh by the turks during the battle of manzikert and even though he's later released the fact that the emperor is off the board even for a short time just triggers the 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 byzantine instinct for vicious and protracted succession conflicts um and so the real winners out of this are uh, are the seljuks again um and again like modern sort of like popular portrayals of the crusades have a tendency to show them as these conflicts between islam and christianity but actually the seljuks who do really well out of this uh are are byzantine allies a lot of the time um, this is the, the seljuk sultanate of rum which just means of rome um, and uh they're founded by uh, an emir called Suleiman, who's uh, an on or again, off again Byzantine ally or allied with some of the various uh, rebels, and he uh, he founds during this period this uh, Seljuk sultanate. There's also a greater Seljuk um, sultanate off in uh, Syria and Mesopotamia, um, from which he is a rebel um, or the the family member of a rebel anyway. So the Byzantine Empire is in crisis during this period. And then even once Alexius has taken the throne, he has to go hearing off um, to deal with an invasion in the Balkans for a couple of years. And we will return to that invasion um, a little bit later on, because it's going to turn out to have been important. So the Byzantines are a very wealthy power, and they're very used to having kind of composite multi-ethnic armies. So uh, for example, in the 1030s, when they invade Sicily, their army has Like Norwegians, there's people from Iceland, there's, um, Bulgarians, there's Greeks, there's Lombards, there's Normans. I mean, that's just kind of how they operate and kind of how a lot of Mediterranean medieval armies operate. We're used to thinking of armies as kind of, oh, this is the expression of a nation, but "Eh, not necessarily. So the idea of hiring some European knights to fight in the, to fight for the Byzantine Empire is not at all an unusual one. And in fact, uh, one of the rebels who had to be dealt with in the 1070s was just such a knight. Um, w- so the the Byzantines send off some ambassadors uh, to request assistance, and they arrive um, in Italy in 1095. Um, but uh, and this is kind of interesting because we don't, I do, I don't think we 100% know what really they were trying to accomplish. It's not something that's discussed much uh in the Byzantine sources as far as I know. Uh, so we only have the the papal interpretation of what these guys want.
1: Okay, so these ambassadors they arrive in Rome from Alexius to ask mm. help from the sort of the Western Roman Empire essentially, what used to be the Western Roman Empire. Um, so what happens
0: there? So they're received by the Pope, uh Urban II. Um they address uh the Council of Piacenza in 1095 and then I think what no one could have predicted is how Urban reacts. Um, uh, so this is when he, he he goes on a preaching tour in uh, in France, and there he calls uh, a church council, the Council of Clermont, um, and he declares this. It's not called a crusade at the time, but that you know Christians should take up arms and go to help liberate the oppressed christians of the east um and in particular he focuses on the idea of recapturing jerusalem and it's extremely hard to believe that alexius cared about recapturing jerusalem which hadn't been in byzantine hands for i mean i don't know the the top off my head but it's centuries um you know he was concerned with his immediate strategic objectives in anatolia uh yeah. hard, hard to see that that you know, he'd care about Jerusalem very much.
1: So this so, is basically like someone going to your house and saying, you know, can you help me fix my roof? And the guys, no worry, I'm going to buy you a new street. It's
0: yeah, that kind of it is only if he possibly had some kind of sinister ulterior motive for buying you a new street. Um, because so urban, he could
2: build a little at the end of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Because urban has, um, he's a product of this church reform school, um, he was, uh, an ally of, uh, Pope Gregory Seventh, who's best remembered for, um, being the Pope in the investiture controversy of the 1070s, um, an enemy of the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Henry IV, and he, he's a, maybe a little subtler than, um, than Gregory, but he's, uh, Urban is definitely trying to, um, give a little boost to papal power and prestige, which has suffered. Um, over the previous decades, uh, there's a, there's an invasion by the emperor and there's an anti-pope gets set up and it's all, you know, the, the, the dignity of the office maybe is not what it once was. And, uh, you know, he, he could, he could do with a win. Um, and he could certainly do with a win that would help with the idea of centralizing, um, some kind of large scale activity under papal authority. And furthermore, uh, giving some kind of church blessing or regulation to the mm. this sort of the military aristocracy uh who who have this conflict. It's actually something that turns up in a few of the sources from this time is this idea that people like Tancred are are worried about the, the the apparent contradiction that they're supposed to be, you know, good Christians, but they spend their lives in robbery and violence.
2: I'm really keen to ask a crusade expert because there's a layman mm. who's just read a couple of books. I look at, because we all know the shit show that the crusades end up causing and, and the legacy still in the middle East of the mm. conflict between religions. To what extent does a crusade expert look at urban and go, <laughs> like I do.
0: I see. I mean, uh, disclaiming that I, you know, uh, I don't know that I would go so far as to call myself an expert, um, but I'll, I'll get into that in, uh, well, maybe I'll get into that later. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think, that, obviously you try not to have that attitude. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I'm, I'm, We're interested in studying the thing as it is, and you don't, there's not good guys and bad guys. We're just studying a historical process. And I don't, this is one of those instances where a lot of the time you look at some historical development and you say, "If this had not happened then, it would have happened at some point, right?" Urban mm-hmm. didn't come up with the idea of, um, you know, church patronage or authorization for wars against Muslim communities because obviously this is something that happens uh, in Spain to some extent already. Um, you know, he certainly didn't come up with the idea of papal authorization for military. Uh, Expeditions that happens in the Norman conquest that happens in other places. So all the pieces maybe are there. Okay. Maybe, maybe Urban just puts them together in, uh, in a new way. And in terms of the legacy of conflict between Christians and Muslims, you know, we're going to see quite a complex picture of that when people actually get into, uh, uh, into contact with Muslim communities because there will be opportunities for alliances with Muslim states. At the same time, certainly it's a it's a divisive uh, legacy in the Middle East. So uh, whether, I, th- I don't know that you can point to urban necessarily and say, this is all your fault, but there's definitely, one of the things that I think is so compelling about the First Crusade is that it is a period where people are playing with matches, um, where we're, we're in kind of uncharted territory in terms of, you know, relations with the Byzantine Empire in terms of relations with these Muslim states who are, who are very, not very well understood, um, in Europe, uh, many of whom are brand new or are otherwise in transition. And so it, it really is this, this kind of weird, unstable situation where anything could happen. And then into that situation where anything could happen, someone decides to have a big, cool idea and then. Yeah. You know, as, that has unpredictable consequences. And Urban, of course, is not going to find out about this because uh, he's going to die before the First Crusade ends.
2: <laughs> so what's really interesting, um, for, and I think a lot of our listeners won't know this, is that the first big mass of people that goes east are not soldiers, are they? So what is the, Or not primarily a big group of an army going. Mm-hmm. What is the People's Crusade, and what is the impact of it?
0: So the People's Crusade is something that I think we, we maybe know We don't have the same level of detailed sources for it that we do for the, the later part of the First Crusade, the so-called Prince's Crusade, because those people have chaplains with them who are writing things down. The People's Crusade is kind of this mixture of lesser lords and apparently just, uh, you know, common people and charismatic preachers, the most famous of whom is this uh, figure called Peter the Hermit. Um, and certainly because it doesn't go very well, certainly later historians are like, oh, this stupid rabble. Um, uh, and, and focus their attention on, um, on the Princess Crusade. But so yeah, the People's Crusade are these people who get very fired up about going to Jerusalem and they actually set off, um, a, a, because they're not as organized, they set off a good deal before the main part of the Crusade. So the People's Crusade, um, get moving in, um, well, so, for example, Peter the Hermit will eventually get to Constantinople in August 1096, which is around when most of the rest um, of, the, of the Crusaders are leaving to go to Constantinople. Um, and they're not going to get there until, uh, you know, anywhere between October 1096 and April 1097. And the People's Crusader are probably most famous for, well, for two things. First, for the, the violence that they commit against Jewish communities. Um uh now that's not I don't know that the Princess Crusade are completely um innocent of that. Uh certainly later Jewish sources are critical of, of Godfrey, who we'll get to in a sec. But uh that yeah, that is probably what they're most notable for and for then um after causing a lot of trouble, turning up in um in Constantinople and like looting houses and fighting the police and what well not police, but fighting imperial troops, um, they eventually cross over to um, uh, to Anatolia, where they start raiding and plundering in the area around Nicaea, and promptly get wiped out by the Seljuks. And uh, some of them do survive and go on to, you know, they go back to Constantinople and join up with, um, with the later wave of Crusaders. But what's really interesting about the People's Crusade is that it shows that there was this level of popular enthusiasm, of religiously motivated popular enthusiasm, right? That we're not just Appealing to uh, to this, you know, the nobility with strong ties to the church, but actually, that there's something about this that does uh, engage the popular imagination, and we're going to see that a couple of times in the First Crusade that the ordinary crusaders sometimes dissent from the overall strategic objectives. You get this. Um, we'll, we'll look back at it later on in, in 1099 when. Um, uh. Raymond of Toulouse has some plans that he thinks make sound strategic sense, but his troops just really want to go to Jerusalem because um, they don't care if
1: Raymond gets some castle. So you the, know. the People's Crusade is basically like, like a rugby tour, just going through Europe, trashing a place.
0: Maybe. Uh, th- there's some evidence that there are more organized elements in it. Um, you know, there are knights out there with their followers, but it's not, there's no, it's not centralized in any way. But then when we get to the Princess Crusade, we're going to see that it's also not centralized.
1: Well, let's talk about it. Let's go to the Prince's Crusade, because while the People's Crusade is getting absolutely destroyed, uh, literally a couple of hundred miles away from Constantinople, they don't Mm. get very far. No, they didn't get very far. Uh, The nobles of Europe have been assembling their forces. So who are the princes of the Prince's Crusade? So
0: lots of people get put on on the list. Uh, For the sake of brevity, I think we can kind of look at three main figures and then... um, and then we'll have a little crowd of others. You know, they—they'd they'd be. Uh, if this were a TV show, the the other princes would be the ones that you look at and you go, "Oh, I've seen him in things." Um, so our, our three. Let's we'll take them from from north to south. Um, our three kind of the people who at some point in their career are can, can be considered the leader of the First Crusade um, are uh, Godfrey of Bouillon. Um, so Godfrey is not unlike a lot of these other crusaders, he is a, well, he's, he's actually a second son as opposed to just being treated like a second son. Um, he uh, inherited the duchy of lower Lorraine from his uncle. Um, and the the really interesting thing about Godfrey is he, so he then has to kind of prove his claim to Lorraine by being a close uh, supporter of Emperor Henry IV. So what's really fascinating about Godfrey is that he is not a natural supporter of Urban. And when we get to the other two, we're gonna see that they are people who already have ties to the papacy and to papal supporters. But Godfrey doesn't. He he fought in the Siege of Rome. He was on the other side. Uh so again is more evidence of the the appeal of this idea. Um, you know, it, it reaches people who maybe would not normally be receptive to a um a papal uh, initiative like this. And if that means nothing more than that aristocrats in medieval Europe love going on pilgrimages. <laughs> um, like just, I mean, it's, it's the best. They love like a pilgrimage and fighting. Um, like there's so, rugby tour. Yeah, kind of. I mean, um, and Godfrey, like he's, and he's all in, like you can see their financial records indicate, you know, that he's, he's like sold or mortgaged large amounts of property. He had to raise a huge amount of money in order to fund, this expedition, because it's not like the Pope's paying for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as anyone could have expected. Um, so, uh, so he's very, clearly very committed to this idea. Um, then going a little further south, we've got Raymond of Toulouse, uh, Raymond IV, Count of Toulouse. He's sort of the, the oldest of the leaders. Um, he's about 10 to 15 years older than either Godfrey or the next person we're going to talk about. Um, and wealthier than most of them. Uh, so, He's, uh, d- despite the fact that we're gonna get some people with, um, with quite prominent ties to royalty, Raymond is actually, he's pretty well off. And, uh, he is a close ally of, uh, Adamar of Lepuy, who is the, the papal legate, who is kind of the pope's liaison with the crusade. And Adamar, at the Council of Clermont, Urban proclaims the crusade, and then Adamar jumps up and begs to be sent, which considering that urban had visited Lepui shortly before that, this was probably a prearranged uh, spontaneous act of religious devotion. And, uh, and Raymond, so Raymond is an old ally of Adamar, who in turn is an old ally of uh, urban. So um, they have a, uh, he, he's kind of more who you'd expect. And, um, uh, and then finally, when we get down to Italy, we've got uh, the sort of the odd duck of the bunch. Um, uh Bohemond of Taranto. He's the son of my a Nor-
2: favorite.
0: He's my favorite too. I mean he's just such a he's such a character who's representative of of the age, right? He's yeah. he's uh he's kind of um you know he is the son of a a Norman uh duke in southern Italy, Robert Giscard. Um and he is the eldest son but uh in fact the duchy has passed to his younger half brother, Roger Borsa, um mm-hmm. because uh for a number of reasons, but mainly because Bohemond is um uh is Robert's uh child by his first marriage. Um and uh and Mum is still around to to um support Roger Borsa. But that's not quite right. He's also got the support of the uncles. Um the uncles are very important. There's a lot of members of the Hauteville family in southern Italy, like a lot. And uh Bohemond is merely the tallest. Um so he is but Walmart is someone whose kind of territorial possessions in southern Italy don't match up with his level of military experience. Uh he was sort of Robert's right-hand man during a previous campaign and um he's he's the, certainly the most experienced field commander of all the senior um crusade leaders and that's something that they're going to going to kind of call on uh quite a lot. But he's lower in sort of wealth and prestige than people like Raymond. Um or Godfrey he's not really a proper count like they are and his grandfather was like essentially a pirate um you know just like with a horse instead of a ship so he's not he doesn't have the glamour that they do then we've got a little cloud of other guys all of whom are fascinating and I'd love to talk about them but um so uh, I meant we have um Hugh de Vermandois he's the king of France's not terribly useful brother um Actually, I say that he—he he turns out to be quite useful later on in the Crusade because the fact that he's a member of the French royal family makes him this excellent ambassador, um, and he winds up getting sent on sort of diplomatic missions uh, a fair bit. But he does—he does run away from the Crusade at one point when things are getting tough. Um, and uh, Anna Comnena tells a funny story about how he—he uh, he sends a, a bragging—he basically like cuts a brag track to Alexius, talking about how great he is, and then gets shipwrecked on the way and shows up destitute. Um, and whether. <laughs> Whether this is true or not, or just Anna making fun of him, I don't know. But,
2: I want it um, to be true.
0: Yeah. Um, it's it it certainly he has this kind of like in the in the text he has this kind of like sad sack quality to him. Yeah it's quite endearing, but I don't know if it's actually, you know, whether that reflects the historical reality or not. Um speaking of brothers of kings, um, we've got Duke Robert of Normandy, Robert Kurthose. Um he is, of course, the jilted elder brother of the King of England. Um and, uh, he's, uh, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's backed up by, um, a bunch of Normans from actual Normandy, as opposed to Bohemond, whose troops are Normans from Southern Italy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's kind of like, there's a definite, um, uh, there's a definite sort of, um, superfluous brothers club thing going on with the crusade. Um, especially since, According to one text later on, uh, Edgar the Athling, the, um, you know, a member of the English royal entourage who is himself a very plausible claimant to the English throne, um, is gonna turn up. It's a bit weird because we're not sure about the timing. He, he was in England very shortly before that. So, um, whether, whether he was really there or not.
2: Prince Harry would have been with them if he was <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. Like it's just like, well, what do you Lord want to do? Well, I'm not
2: Could have been worked out on the first crusade. That's
0: right, yeah. I'm not really needed, so I'm gonna go be a soldier of fortune. Yeah. You know.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> as opposed to moving to LA.
1: One of them, um, Stephen, he's 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 married to William the Conqueror's daughter, isn't he? And he sort of yes. she basically yeah, yeah. forces him to go on crusade.
0: Yeah, he's Robert so he's Robert's brother in law, so they you know they're kind of there's sort of a little northern french group um so Robert's there stephen is there um and uh also there's another Robert Robert of flanders um who definitely kind of should have and also in front of his name like and also robert of flanders but <laughs> he 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 turns up you know again i i i feel like i'm denigrating them poor old stephen has a he has a rough go of it as well um he like you he um he fails to fulfill his vow and then actually has to go back and do a second try. um, Also not successfully. Um, uh, He, he, he actually dies um, trying to do that. So there's some, you know, not everybody is like, we've been through this filtering process where we all realize later on that Bohemond is, you know, this preeminent character, but I don't know if you would have necessarily thought that in 1096.
2: I think um, one thing I just want to point out in case our listeners mm. aren't getting it. I mean, yeah, the English are all over the later Crusades, but this one is so French slash Norman in flavor, isn't it?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, And uh, like, it's very much, you've got, you got sort of Northern French and Southern French, and then you've got um, Normans from Italy. Yeah. Um, And there yeah, is it,
2: this is why uh, 900 years later in world war one, the French claim that when the Middle East gets divided up, they should have Syria because they went there first with this. That's their argument.
0: That feels like a bit of a reach.
2: Yeah. (laughs) There was (laughs) the committee of Asia, French committee of Asia. That was their argument for saying that Syria was essentially French.
0: That's a, that's one of those, like you didn't do the reading, like first paragraph of the essay kind of or moments. You just read like,
2: Wikipedia for research.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like so please explain your claim to Syria on the first page. When Godfrey of Bouillon arrived in yeah. like, <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Um so yeah, there's um also because this is the Middle Ages, these people are the, you know, they're they're accompanied to many cases by their families. I mentioned obviously Stephen is Robert's brother in law. Um Bohemond is ably seconded by his nephew Tancred. Um uh Godfrey's got one of his brothers with him and also some various cousins who are frustratingly quite a lot of them are called Baldwin.
2: Um, That got really confusing. at
0: (laughs) Yeah. Just there were not a lot of names to go around in the middle ages. Apparently Um, uh, two of the sons of the original Tancred, not this Tancred, but two of the brothers of uh, Robert Giscard have the same first name.
2: Yeah, this, so this is guy, There's a guy in England at the same time, and this is my favourite anecdote about um, the aristocracy of the 10-1100s. We had so many bastards, and you know the prefix is Fitz. So mm-hmm. we had a Fitz-William, Fitz-Harold, and then by number 10, the guy was called Fitz-Other.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's very <laughs> it's very like that. And, and, it, and again, it, it kind of like, it interestingly goes to show, because... The two Williams who are sons of uh, of Tancred, they're very far apart in his list of sons. So you would never confuse one for the other. Like, they're different generations. So it, it sort of works because, you know, that's why they all have colorful nicknames. Like, Bohemond's real name is Mark. Um,
2: yeah, it wouldn't have the same effect, would it?
0: No, but, you know, but there's presumably a lot of other people called Mark and therefore he's called Bohemond.
1: Um, and Bohemond um, is pretty controversial when it comes to helping out the Byzantine Empire, though, isn't he? <laughs> yeah this is kind of one of those awkward moments or well, or is it uh, so
0: remember I mentioned that there was this invasion of the Byzantine Empire in the early 1080s. That was Bohemond um It was actually it was him and his father, so Robert Giscard had this this again, remember there are lots of things that are going on in this period that in hindsight we look at and think that could never work, but lots of things that previously had been thought could never work had just worked. In the 11th century, right? So the, the Norman conquest of Southern Italy is going great. Sicily is developing. England obviously happened. So the Normans kind of have this sort of, you know, oh, we give this a go. Like the last thing didn't seem like it would work out, but why not? Sort of sense to it. there's
2: no Twitter to trash you for your hypocrisy as
0: well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, th- but he gets trashed for his hypocrisy. He just doesn't care, right? Like, yeah, Bohemond doesn't read the comments.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, Anna's, <laughs> no. Anna's comments on Bohemond are sort of quite interesting because she she's blatantly got a girl crush on him.
0: Yeah, but she um, also hates him. It's 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 fascinating. She's writing within this this. To, I mean, we could talk about Anna, but um, Anna is writing within like a tradition of. So I'm sorry, Anna Komnena is Alexius's daughter, um, and later on, she's quite young at this point. Later on, she writes a history of his reign, the Alexiad, um, and so she's she's you know, she's quite rare as a uh, a woman writing about history in the Middle Ages, and she's a very interesting figure in that respect. But it is important to know that when she's writing all this stuff, she knows the ending already. Mm. So she knows that Bohom when Bohemond makes this deal with the Emperor in 1097, she knows he's going to crayfish later on. So she paints him as this kind of scoundrelly, dishonorable character, because she knows that eventually he'll break the agreement. And so she yeah. he, she tells all these stories about how deceptive he is right from the start but at the same time she provides this physical description that is it's this super macho she talks about how uh how huge he is uh, and how neatly shaven he is um and it's a bit pervy isn't it yeah but then all of Anna's descriptions are like that um and when considering that like she kind of mainly writes about her father it's a bit yeah, it's just become
2: my <laughs> sole ambition in life to have an autobiography or a blog called the Alexiad now.
0: <laughs> yeah, um. well, exactly. <laughs> um, so the, the, if, you, if you go back and read a lot of Byzantine historians, with a few exceptions, um, most obviously Procopius, what, what to a Byzantine reader would read like a scathing criticism to us feels revoltingly servile. Um, like flattery was just a highly developed art among Byzantine historians. So yeah, it, it, in the 1080s, yes, Robert G. Stard had tried to like solve the problem of having these two prominent sons by carving out a little extra principality for Bohemond out of uh, Byzantine territories in the Balkans. And indeed, um, they chase off Alexius himself at the Battle of Dyrachium. Um But the Byzantines The Byzantines are very good at what they do. And what they do is try to win wars without fighting as much as possible. So, um, like, for example, the Byzantines have been keeping a spare heir to the Norman Duchy of Apulia in the pocket just in case the Normans started to cause trouble. Um, That's uh, Robert's nephew, Abelard. Um, and so they just send him back to Apulia to start causing trouble and they get in touch with Emperor Henry IV, and they say, boy, you know, that Pope, he's a bad guy. You should probably do something about him. Um, and then the Pope sends panicky letters to the Normans asking them to come back and help and so on and so on. So, um, the, the whole thing kind of comes to nothing and worst of all, um, in, uh, 1085, as they're kind of like trying to start getting the campaign uh, going again, Robert dies. Um so Bohemond winds up spending most of his time alternatively supporting and feuding with the other members of his family um, rather than conquering the Balkans. So on the one hand, Bohemond has incredibly valuable experience. He speaks Greek. He uh, has experience fighting Turkic uh, light horse. Like he understands the strategies you need to deal. He knows the terrain. He knows the way to get from southern Italy to Thessaloniki all fantastic. The only problem is that the way he learned all those things was invading the Byzantine empire. So Alexius <laughs> is not going to be too happy to see him when he turns up. But on the other hand, part of Alexius like characteristically Byzantine diplomatic strategy is he's always working with people that have previously been his enemies. Um, that's just kind of how medieval politics goes. You know, you need to forge alliances with people who were trying to kill you yesterday and pretend like they're your best friends. So Uh, We're going to see that a couple of times uh, during the Crusades. So, I mean, I'm sure Alexis is keeping a wary eye on Beaumont, but I'd be keeping a wary eye on a lot of them. You know, there's there's not one of them that much less devious than the others. Beaumont, you maybe want to keep an extra eye on, as events will prove. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, so the Princess Crusade, uh, they, they turn up to Constantinople and Alexius tries to get them to swear an oath to him that any territory that they captured that was previously part of the Byzantine Empire, um, they will return to him. <laughs> um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. slightly
2: outnumbered at this point alexia how do you think this is going to well, go this down? is the
0: thing i i don't think he thinks that um th- that they're going to keep it necessarily but in the early parts of the campaign they do um, because he's still able to provide them with very important logistical support so I mean, the Byzantines come off quite well out of the first crusade. They basically get a bunch of territory that they wanted and they don't, you know, they have to kind of, they pay for it, you know, in money, but they don't have to fight a bunch of huge battles. Um, it's actually pretty good news for them. Although of course they will then be left with this lasting legacy of annoying Franks. Uh, Franks, incidentally, kind of the, the overall 900
2: term. year legacy by the time it gets <laughs> right exactly. and everything. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but uh but you know they they got short term problems to think about. Mm-hmm. So the Crusaders have all got to Constantinople. They have begun marching across modern day Turkey, this this Sultanate of of Rome. What happens next?
0: So their first target is the city of Nicaea. Um, this is effectively the capital of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome. And the the good news is that the Seljuks are in disarray. In fact, kind of the whole Muslim Middle East um, is having a rough couple of years. In the 1090s. So, you'll remember that I mentioned Suleiman, Suleiman I, um, Suleiman ibn Qutulmish. he was the first Seljuk Sultan of Rum, um, and he was killed in battle with the Great Seljuks, the sort of main Seljuk Sultanate, in 1086. Um, and his son, Kilij Arslan, was taken as a hostage. But in 1092, the, the main Seljuk Sultan, Kilij, uh, excuse me, Malik Shah, he dies, and Kilij Arslan returns and begins taking back the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. Um, the succession crisis caused by Malik Shah's death is going to last like 25 years. Um, he's, the the Seljuk Sultanate is not a single centralized state. It's got a bunch of emirs who all have their own agendas and their own followings. And, uh, a lot of them are kind of, um, you know, powerful, independent warlords. A great example of this would be Tutush, who's one of their rulers in Syria. Only guess what? He too has recently died. Um, uh, leaving behind, uh, yeah, he died in uh, 1094, and he leaves behind, um, two sons, Dukak, who's the Emir of Damascus, and Ridwan, who's the Emir of Aleppo. And also in 1094, um, the vizier of the Fatimid Caliphate, that's in Egypt, um, uh, he dies, leaving behind his son to advise, uh, the Emperor, al oh, the, the Caliph, al only he dies! Um, the Caliph dies also in 1094. So it's just political instability and succession crises all around for the Seljuks and the Fatimids and the Seljuks Sultanate of Rome in the 1090s. And this is all by way of explaining why Kilij Arslan is not home when the crusaders turn up. Um, he is off dealing with another problem somewhere else. So they lay siege to the city of Nicaea. The problem is that Nicaea um, has a big lake right next to it and they're the city is able to be resupplied. We're going to see that siege tactics are a real problem during the first crusade. Um, but eventually, so they, they set out, they cross over uh, in, um, uh, in the spring of 1097 and the siege of Nicaea uh, begins in May, 1097. Um, Alexius has sent uh, a, as a liaison officer, this guy called Teticius, who uh, is one of his cavalry officers. And indeed fought against Bohemond during uh, the Balkan campaign. Um and uh, in mid-May, the Crusaders learn that Kilij Arslan is finally on his way back with a relief force. Um, and again, so they they ride out, they defeat the the Seljuk relief force, uh, which is much smaller than the Crusading army. We don't know how big the Crusader force is. Um, medieval estimates of army sizes a huge are,
2: range of estimates isn't yeah they? they're
0: wildly inaccurate um
2: like from what is it from one of them's about a hundred thousand isn't
0: it yeah yeah and it's just that's all nonsense um yeah. the the when when a medieval chronicler writes like for the next engagement the battle of Doralium, they're gonna write there's three hundred and sixty thousand turks which just means a lot there's a lot yeah <laughs> one there's but above above once we get above a few hundred or a few thousand these these sources are completely unreliable
1: it's like so, liverpool saying how many people are in anfield
2: yeah, or Arsenal with their season ticket holders. When you're looking at a half-empty stadium at a Carling Cup game, and uh, it says that it's a sellout,
0: that sounds like it could be true. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, but so um, the and again the this crusade is is not like it's not centrally organized. No one is in command. There's no single commander. Every you know lord is just kind of doing whatever they think is best. They're they're discussing it, but the northern French don't even turn up until the beginning of June. Um and finally it's what happens from
2: any Sarky comment about the French being late for things. Well they've
0: got the furthest to come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um uh, so what happens is um eventually the city surrenders, but it surrenders to the Byzantines. And so the Crusaders are are they wanted to plunder the city, right? They plun the city didn't surrender to them, they want to plunder it. And Alexis is like, no, this is a Byzantine city. I'm not letting you plunder my cities you know, the whole point of this is that this is legitimately my territory. But here, have a bunch of gold anyway, yeah. um to, you know, to compensate you for your losses. And while he's here, um he meets them at nearby Pelicanum and he forces them to he forces some of them to take their their oaths to him, who managed to dodge it the first time. Like Tancred showed up in Constantinople and then just skipped over the Bosphorus as quick as he could in order to avoid yeah. <laughs> swearing an oath to Alexius. An oath he had no intention of keeping if he did swear it. So I don't I guess he was just being and he wanted to be consistent. Um, yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Uh, and so then, yes, they, uh, um, and, and at this point they send off some envoys to Cairo to talk to the Fatimids because they know that the Fatimids also don't like the Seljuks. Um, the Fatimids are uh, urbanized, you know, sort of settled civilization. The Seljuks are a, a nomad aristocracy ruling a non seljuk uh, populace, the Fatimids are Shiites and the Seljuks are Sunnis, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also more importantly, the Seljuks recently took a bunch of territory, including Jerusalem off the Fatimids. Um, so, uh, so there may be some grounds for an alliance there. It's not going to work out, but that's yeah. the idea.
2: So the next stage, we get about halfway, don't we? With Antioch. Yeah. So they, tell they, us about they, the siege
0: they head, so they head off. The, the, the big target is Antioch. Antioch's a big city. Yeah. Um, there's another battle on the way, the Battle of Doraleum. Um The Crusaders split up their forces to avoid um, supply problems, probably. Uh, the front half gets attacked by the Turks and manages to hold until the second half turns up, um, which is the, uh, the, the secret, right? Like if, as long as you don't go chasing the Turkic cavalry, um, it's going to be very uncomfortable, but hopefully your reinforcements will arrive. Um, and so, yeah, the siege of Antioch is the main part of the First Crusade. Like, if you look at the calendar, so these, the princely armies left their home bases, you know, over a range of times between August and December 1096. They turned up um, in Constantinople from the autumn to 10, of 1096 to the spring of 1097. They get to Antioch uh in October 1097 and they're not going to leave it again really until the, the the very end of 1098, beginning of 1099. So, of the time that they spend in the Middle East, the majority of it is spent besieging or defending Antioch. There is a secondary uh, expedition that splits off from the main party and they go through Cilicia, which is an Armenian um, uh, region where they create some Alliances? <laughs> With the locals? I just, I want to express the appropriate note of skepticism. Like, um, uh, Baldwin manages to get adopted by, um, an Armenian, uh, nobleman who then mysteriously dies. Um.
2: <laughs> One way of forming an alliance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Huh. Oh, what, what a terrible tragedy. Who could have foreseen it? Um. So, I mean. Probably the guy wielding the axe as he did it. Yeah, he just got, yeah, just got assassinated. (laughs) And this is, Um, this
1: is the crusaders not really caring one whit about Jerusalem. This is them carving out territory, right? Partly, but it's also like Cilicia is the the more direct route from where they are
0: to Antioch. It's just that they're concerned that it's more dangerous because to get there, you have to go through two narrow mountain passes and they're worried that the defenders of Antioch could like, could block those passes. So they kind of send their, their, they're securing uh, an important communications route, but also they're capturing territory. That they have no intention of giving back. Um, back of giving, you know, yes, this, this will, um, these alliances alliances, will prove to be very important to them in the future. So the siege of Antioch, Antioch's a nightmare. Antioch is defended um, by a garrison commander by a guy called um, Yahi Sian. He's an experienced and clever uh, governor The city is huge and it's right along the slopes of a mountain. So, like, again, when we think of a siege, we think of digging, like, big trenches all around the city. But that's absolutely not what happens because the Crusaders simply don't have enough people to surround the entire city. So instead, what they're doing is creating outposts along the major, like, roads into and out of the city and just trying to intercept people going in and out. But there are frequent sorties and there are gates to the city that remain open. The city is receiving fresh supplies throughout the siege. And if you want to say that's not really how a siege works, you'd be right. Um, like, it just kind of doesn't, it doesn't work great. Um, Yahisian uh, sends out for reinforcements. And this is where those two brothers that I mentioned earlier, Rizwan and Dukak, come in. They're kind of the closest uh, major cities. And uh, they separately come to the relief of Antioch at different times and they both get beat or well, maybe the first one is a draw, but he decides to go home anyway and not risk it. Um, and the third person um, who's going to maybe come to Antioch's relief is the Emir or the Atabe, technically the governor of Mosul, um, a guy called Kerboja And he's, uh, he's maybe a little bit more formidable than these two. Um, and we'll see, he's going to come along in a little bit, but for now, um, the crusaders, the siege is just dragging on, right? So the siege uh, really starts in um, the at the end of October 1097. Um, they've got the port of uh, San Simeon, um, which allows them to get resupplied by sea. So a Genoese fleet turns up in November. Uh, the Genoese are hugely important in terms of supplying the crusades. They don't get talked about much in the histories because it's not glamorous, but uh, they do a lot. Um, and later on, they're going to be absolutely crucial in December food is starting to run short. So the crusaders are having a forage far from their, their camp, which is how they accidentally blunder into Dukak's relief army. Um, uh, Bohemond, uh, is in charge of that together with good old and Robert of Flanders. Um, he's around, um, uh, eventually to goes home. um, to, to, you know, plead with the emperor to send supplies or reinforcements. That never happens. Um, in February 1098, Ridwan comes along with his relief force. And this is crucial. Again, like, this idea that the crusaders are these armored brutes getting outmaneuvered by nimble Turkic, whatever. Bohemond lures Ridwan's relief army into a trap and smashes it. Um, and Ridwan goes home as well. Um, all the way back to Aleppo. Um, uh, you know, inter- intermittent um, intermittent, uh, relief, like what's the word I'm looking for? Fleets, you know, shipments arrive, but situation is still very bad. They're losing people to hunger. This is when people are are kind of giving up and going home. Mm. And in the spring, um, or in, uh, in sort of April to may 1098, Bohemond, Bohemond unbeknownst to the other leaders, we think is carrying out negotiations with someone inside Antioch, a guy called Farouz. And when news comes that Carboja is leading a relief army to Antioch, Bohemond proposes to the other uh, leaders of the Crusade. He says, say, fellas, you know, uh, I have this idea. I don't know. Tell me what you think of it. But what if whoever captures Antioch we let that person have Antioch and rule it. I, I mean, whoever it might be, it might be Robert of Flanders. It might be, you know, it might be Godfrey. It might be Raymond. Just whoever it might be, let's I make them be, Lord of Antioch. Me. <laughs> it's a silly idea. <laughs> and then they all go, well, you know, we don't have much of a choice. Like, it seems like the situation is is critical. Kerboja's almost here. And Bohemond goes, great. Now, as it happens, I have a plan. Um, And so Farouz lets some of Bohemond's men in. Um, And from there, they manage to get, the rest of the army into the city, and they capture all of the city except for the citadel, which is still under uh, under the defenders' control. Right throughout this whole thing, um, and so with Kerbok his way, even though they're in the city, the city is depleted after a long siege. There's no food. There's no horses. Things are looking rough.
1: This this is this is not a good situation. Um, and so people are giving up at this point, as you mentioned. Um, is is this happening immediately, or is are they trying to defend the city? What's going on? So they they I, I, I can't believe that I didn't say at the
0: end of the last segment what we need is a miracle because yeah. <laughs> uh, that is of course, precisely what's going to come along. Um, this is one of those confusing elements. different different authors, different writers about the crusade who were there have have different views about the the, the incident of the Holy lands. Um, because the situation looks pretty bleak. Kerboha and his army turn up and they're, they, they hugely outnumber the Crusaders. Um, and they haven't just done a, a lengthy siege where they're all sick and hungry and their horses are dead. So it looks pretty bad, but don't worry. Um, they've got God on their side. Um, and uh, and in, so Kerboha turns up like first week of June, pushes the last defenders in from the outposts and About a week after that, uh this fellow called Peter Bartholomew uh turns up. He has a meeting with Raymond and Adamar in which he claims that uh Saint Andrew appeared to him in a dream and told him where the holy lance is, the spear that pierced Christ's side while he's on the cross. Now Adamar presumably is aware that there is already just such a lance in the possession of the Byzantine Emperor.
2: Is that the one that Keanu Reeves ends up with?
1: It's it's the sort of the knockoff lance. (laughs) The the lance
0: that Keanu Reeves ends up with is based on yet a third relic holy (laughs) lance. Oh, Um, I believe that one's that's a German one. I think. Um,
2: Yeah, yeah, that's all to do with the Nazis and their crazy shit, isn't it? That's
0: right. There's a there's. I have a story about that, but we're going to put it to one side because (laughs) the Battle of Antioch is about to happen. Yeah, do it. Um so Adamar is not immediately convinced by this but Raymond uh, seems to like it. We don't know very much about Peter Bartholomew. He was a servant, um he worked for uh, a Provençal knight who was in Raymond's retinue and he is assigned to be looked after by Raymond's chaplain, a fellow called Raymond um <laughs> who who is the author of this history that's uh, about you know that, that discusses it but even with you know presumably he spoke to him and knew more about him but he doesn't tell us that much. Um uh so it appears that um so they send Peter the Hermit. Remember Peter the Hermit? He's still around. Um in fact he tried to run off again, um, if I recall correctly. And so they send him to try and negotiate with Kerboja toward the end of June. Um, and he is unsuccessful. But presumably they're thinking that if Kerboja decides to execute the messenger, it's only Peter the Hermit. Um and uh at some <laughs>
2: love there is there.
0: No, well, you wouldn't. Um, they, I think I think the the perception is that Peter the Hermit is sort of popular among the troops, but I don't think the leaders like him very much. Um. Uh. So they they make a plan, and it's a it's a bit of a it's not terrific, um, but they don't have much to work with. They put Beaumont in overall command, um, and on June 28th they fight the Battle of Antioch and they win. Now. Later Muslim historians say that this is because of an uncoordinated Muslim response, basically that Kerboha is overconfident, he's not prepared, and so what happens is that the different divisions of his army basically kind of attack whenever they're ready, rather than launching a coordinated attack. But that's, I mean, those people are writing decades later. Mm. What the contemporary eyewitnesses, the people who were there, say is that angels came down and fought on behalf of the crusaders. There's your, there's your primary sources. That's what they have to say about it.
2: God prove it didn't happen.
0: God God did it. Now you might say that these people have been fasting for 72 hours, wearing 40 pounds of armor in Syria in June, um, and they could have and seen all sorts of things. Out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of their minds with terror yeah. and adrenaline.
2: It's actually um, surprising that the angels didn't descend on unicorns.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's it's but it's definitely, it's a, you know, it's a great miracle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and then they decide, uh, okay, you know, the army is, is exhausted. We're going to rest up here, um, and we're going to head out to Jerusalem in a couple of months. And this does not quite work out.
2: Um, yeah, so this is where they're ultimately headed, isn't it? It's Jerusalem. They do get there, some of them.
0: That is the theory of the thing. Yeah. Like a pretty small percentage of them compared to the ones that set out. Uh, cause it's been a, Antioch's been rough. Yeah. Um, so they immediately start kind of following out, like, following out? They immediately start falling out over who's going to run Antioch. Um, and the two main rivals at this point are Beaumont and Raymond.
2: It's not really surprising, is it? And no. <laughs>
0: um, Beaumont I think, has sort of figured, like, if Alexius isn't willing to come this far to take Antioch back from the Turks, he's also not willing to come this far to take Antioch back from me. So...
2: Reasonable.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's, I mean, I might as well just stay here and be the Prince of Antioch and live in a big house and, you know, not, or like, or go home to Bari and get, you know, bullied by my half-brothers. Like, forget this. Now, that's not, that's not how it's going to work out. Um, Bohemond is in fact going to go back to Bari. Um, but uh, not for a while. And so, uh, so there's a big squabble that goes on for a while. Raymond starts to kind of expand, um, his, uh, his territory out a little to the south of Antioch. Uh, they lay siege to a town called Marat al-Numan. That's the, where the famous reports of crusader cannibalism come from. Um, but uh, eventually, Raymond kind of has no choice but to decide that he's going to go to Jerusalem because the troops are restless. They want to go to Jerusalem. Um, you know, well, they,
2: they don't out for, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and they don't care if Raymond's like builds up his power in the fertile Rouge Valley. Like that's, that's not, yeah, that's not their goal. And he doesn't head out until December 1098. So again, it has been
1: over a full year since they arrived in Antioch. Um, well, they just kind of like leave Bohemond in charge of the city and yeah. anyone who isn't Bohemond heads off. Yes. Uh, well, but, but not together. Um, because that
0: would be
2: far too organised and reasonable, wouldn't it?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, yes and no. That splitting up is, you know, on a defensive level, it's dangerous, but on an economic level it's actually not that unwise because they their transportation links between regions aren't fantastic, right? So they need to spread out so that they don't overtax the like the food resources of one area, basically, yeah. right? Um, you'd rather have, I mean, not that they have 30,000 people, but like, you'd rather have like 10,000 people go to one place, 10,000 people go to the other place. This um, is
2: what drives me mad about things like, uh, Game of Thrones, where you see like 8 million people in an army by the wall and you're like, where are they eating from? Yeah.
0: Yes, right. The, the, you don't, you don't keep them all in one place until the moment you need them. And shifting from one to the other is quite complex. In fairness, I always like people who go, where's the logistics in, uh, like, there's nothing wrong with giving them some backpacks, but it's like, where's the farming? Like, don't don't ask that question unless you want to watch a bunch of scenes of, like, dudes farming, which doesn't sound that exciting compared to fighting
1: zombies. Oh yeah, so so they might Then they eventually sort of begin to march in separate groups down towards Jerusalem. Yeah, I think Tancred gets Galilee. Yeah, so they and and by this point they're. They're
0: pursuing a primarily diplomatic strategy. There's, there's one or two little sieges on the way. Um, indeed, one of them, uh, is, uh, um, is, is sort of not very, um, very conducive to, to Raymond's reputation. Um, he, uh, uh, he, he sort of, um, all the credit that Raymond built up in Antioch is starting to bleed away, um, as they head south toward Jerusalem. In particular, Peter Bartholomew finally loses it um in uh in April ten ninety nine and uh one of Robert's chaplains, a guy called Arnulf, um, accuses him of being a fraud and he agrees to undergo uh a trial by fire, which although we think about them as being the kind of thing that happens in the Middle Ages, it's actually not all that common. Um and he is uh burned to death. Um which
2: well that's one categorical verdict then isn't it?
0: Yeah, but I mean that suggests... now again the the historical accounts differ. Um Raymond Evagula, the guy who was looking after him, says that he made it through the fire unscathed, but then the mob were so eager to touch him that they actually hurt him really badly and he died. And then the pro-Bohemont history says, yeah, he walked through the fire and he got burned to death. Um, but it implies that he didn't think he was lying? Because otherwise, surely you'd try to get out of walking into a fire. It's it's a really int- like that. That incident fascinates me and I, you know, we'll never know exactly what happened, but I think it's a, I think it's a really like, was he a fraud or did he believe his own hype? Is it, it I don't know. Mad,
2: it? So
0: yes, that they, they go through this whole thing. And finally um, they, they rock up in Jerusalem. But by this time sort of Godfrey has become the center of the crusading army. A lot of Lords who had attached themselves to Raymond have begun to move um, toward Godfrey. Now, the awkward thing about Jerusalem is the, the Seljuks aren't even there anymore. Yeah. Um, the Fatimids took it back in uh, August 1098, which um, incidentally is also the month, I skipped this bit, but Adamar died then, so they are without a papal legate
2: yeah. um,
0: at this point. And Peter Bartholomew said a bunch of stuff about how Adamar came to him as a ghost and apologize for having doubted the Holy Lance, which it's uh, <laughs> a bit insensitive. I felt.
2: Yeah. Um, Let's finish off then by saying, so Jerusalem, then there is a power vacuum and this is kind of the end of the first crusade, isn't it? Yes. Um, and you, you've already kind of explained, cause we're supposed to ask you, how does Godfrey become King? But he is stepping into that vacuum, isn't he?
0: Yeah. So the siege of Jerusalem doesn't last anything like as so long as the Antioch takes about six weeks. Um, uh, I'm bad at dates, but that sounds about right. And uh, yes. And so they have to decide who's going to be in charge and no one can quite agree. So some people are like, oh, it should be a free city run by the, well, not a free city, but it should be church property. Cause you know, it's Jerusalem.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, it should be, but it's clear that there needs to be a military authority of some kind. Raymond turns it down. Um, uh, not, not sure what's going on there. And Godfrey decides to set up and become... King of Jerusalem. Now, people will tell you that Godfrey refused the title king, um, because he would not wear a crown of gold in the city where Christ had worn a crown of thorns, um, okay. and, and instead he calls himself the advocate of the Holy Sepulchre. But there's actually not that much u- evidence that he used the title advocate of the Holy Sepulchre. He probably just called himself prince or duke, which was already his title. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: and yeah, he kind of he kind of becomes king because he's the one that everybody can agree on. Raymond has territorial ambitions further north. Um, you know in the space between Antioch and Jerusalem. Bohemond uh is in Antioch and happy with that fact. Um and uh you know Godfrey is the other major uh leader of the crusade. He's got uh and, and he sort of um they, they put it a little left <laughs> it, well yes yeah <laughs> they put a little full stop on the thing by going out and uh thumping the Fatimids at the Battle of Ascalon. Yeah. Um just to uh, just to stop them from taking the city back. Um, but they don't take the city of Ascalon, which is going to prove to be a huge problem for Jerusalem because it's going to mean that there's a Fatimid military base right in their front yard. Um, and supposedly they don't take it because Godfrey and Raymond are too busy arguing about uh, who's going to rule it once they have it, that
1: in fact, in the end, they don't have it. Um, and they've basically just set up 200 years of Franks arguing about who owns what and what's going to happen. Yeah, for in, sure. And so this basically
0: does um,
1: develop into the Crusader
0: states that we recognize. So Jerusalem in the south, then Tripoli, which is Raymond's, then Antioch, which is Bohemond, although he, he rules it for himself for a very short period of time. Most of the time he's in jail or overseas and uh, Tancred is actually running it. Um, and then uh, Edessa um, uh, under... Uh, initially Godfrey's brother Baldwin and then his other relative Baldwin um, uh, up in the Northeast. And that's not going to last because that's right up on the frontier. Um, and it, it gets, it gets taken out in the mid 12th century, but the others are going to survive for quite a while. Um, and so that's the landscape against which the subsequent crusades occur is very much determined by this formation of the crusader States, which was kind of opportunistic you know, I no one it sat down with
2: like a combination of second son syndrome. Um, a situation that you say, like, I know urban is the one where we look at him and go, oh, but you're saying that the situation was going to evolve eventually in some way, shape or form. Yeah.
0: Maybe not in this precise yeah. form, but the, there was a combination of, um, kind of, you know, overproduction in one area, a power vacuum in another, a, A desire to centralize papal authority, uh, a rising excitement about, you know, going on high status pilgrimages, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, no one sat down with a map and went, okay, we're going to conquer all this territory and we're going to divide it into four parts. Um, I think, uh, I think even as early as the siege of Antioch, I don't think everybody is thinking we're going to stay here. Just kind of worked out that way.
2: Thank you so much, James, for coming on to giving us an overview, such a comprehensive overview. of the first crusade is brilliant as i say it's my favorite crusade if you get to pick a favorite um because it is it's like it's there's no there's none of the context of the later ones where they're all trying it's all following on from each other this is the one where they first decided it'd be a great idea to get a hundred thousand in inverted commas people together and just go wandering across asia thank
0: you so much for having me i'm sorry we've uh we've run a little long Oh, no, I love but, it! I uh, it's
2: brilliant. I think, but uh,
0: I, 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 frankly, I think I should be uh, praised for my restraint in not going down some of these oh, <laughs> side
2: This is the <laughs> thing: There's There's so many of them come back and do a crusading rabbit hole thing. So was, is, thing. We got to mention that are really fun, but would take us away from the narrative. Sorry, we can
0: we can, we can do a listicle style: ten things you didn't know. Yeah,
2: yeah. We'll um, come back and we'll do outtakes of the first crusade. <laughs> <I don't know.
0: laughs> That's right. What got left on the cutting room floor? Deleted scenes. Um, all right fantastic well w- once again thank you so much uh for having me uh kit thank you so much for uh, uh setting all this up uh, it's been amazing fun and i'm really glad that i uh, got the chance to do it
2: don't forget that we do exist on patreon There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year.
1: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org